Yeah, so y'all asked for opening and closing music. We got some opening music there. I hope you like it, because I think that encapsulates how bad Paul Tillich's theology is. My goodness. Especially because today, he finally, finally gets into theology proper. That is, the word concerning God. What is God? Who is God? How should we think about God? And Paul Tillich, um, how do I put this? He's a semi-theist. He wouldn't call himself an atheist. He wouldn't join ranks with us theists either. Oh no, he has a bunch of weird definitional ramblings that can only be considered semi-theism. Remember, if you ask Paul Tillich if God exists, He'll say, no. If you ask Paul Tillich if God is real, he will say, yes. Now, up until this point, there's been this implication that his belief in God is based on ontology. There must be a ground of all being, something which is immune to the infinite regress of ontological questions. The prime question for all ontology is, why is there something rather than nothing? The problem with that question is, most attempts at answering it can also be responded to with the same ontological question. Why do I exist rather than not exist? Well, because my parents gave birth to me. Well, why do they exist rather than not exist? Well, their parents gave birth to them. Why does humanity exist instead of not exist? Well, we were created in some fashion by a creator. Well, why does that creator exist instead of not existing? And so on and so forth. Tillich keeps implying that God is the ground of all being. There must be a very real ground of all being, but if you say that that ground exists, well, then you're inviting yet another ontological question. Why does the creator, why does the theistic God exist instead of not existing? Now, the proper Christian response to that is, he's God. He can be the ground of all being and also exist because he's God. I have no problem saying that. For some mysterious reason, Paul Tillich believes that if you can ask a question, the answer or lack thereof means that the thing itself is somehow automatically contingent and therefore can't be the true God of theism. That's not how it works. But Tillich is not a theologian in the truest sense. He is a philosopher that loves philosophy. He loves phenomenology. He loves ontology. He loves existentialism. So he thinks that somehow his philosophical underpinnings can totally pwn God. Let's see what he says about the meaning of God. God and man's ultimate concern. God is the answer to the question implied in man's finitude. He is the name for that which concerns man ultimately. 
This does not mean that first there is a being called God, and then the demand that man should be ultimately concerned about him. It means that whatever concerns a man ultimately becomes God for him. And conversely, it means that a man can be concerned ultimately only about that which is God for him. The phrase, being ultimately concerned, points to a tension in human experience. Now that does sound almost Lutheran, doesn't it? When Martin Luther was called upon to define God for his catechisms, he says pretty plainly, God is whatever you look to expecting all of your good from. If you look to the God of the Bible for all of your good, you place your faith in the true God, then he is your God. If a man looks towards money and greed and the amassing of wealth for all of his good, well, it turns out his God is money. It's mammon. Things like that. It sounds almost Lutheran, but with some sort of uh, existentialist spin on it, given the angst of man's finitude, right? Wrong. Because Paul Tillich is not concerned about the ultimate concern of ultimate concerns, the real God. He already says this doesn't mean there's first a being called God and you should be ultimately concerned about him. Oh, no, 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 no. The definition for God, capital G God, may I add, is that which concerns us ultimately. Now, earlier in this series, we already pointed to theology and saw that Paul Tillich defines it as, well, the scope of the ultimate concern. What concerns a theologian is that which concerns us ultimately. Except now, in his definition for God, he has expanded the scope of that to mean literally whatever he wants. Whatever we want. <laughs> that's right. Whatever concerns humanity, ultimately, is that's God, okay? Can we just, can we just admire how blatantly humanist and gross that is? He even gives an example here. The more concrete a thing is, the more possible concern about it. The completely concrete being, the individual person, is the object of the most radical concern, the concern of love. On the other hand, ultimate concern must transcend every preliminary finite and concrete concern. It must transcend the whole realm of finitude in order to be the answer to the question implied in finitude. But in transcending the finite, the religious concern loses the concreteness of a being-to-being -being relationship. Oh, love could be your god. After all, you're concrete, and the most quote-unquote radical way to express that and see that is the radical concern of love. Love could be your god. Why not? And But, you know, it's got to be transcendent, but not too transcendent, because otherwise it loses a concrete being-to-being -being relationship. 
Mm. So we have a tension here. It's got to be concrete and applicable, and you've got to be the object of this God, but at the same time, it cannot be so concrete and down to earth that it doesn't explain anything. It doesn't transcend anything. Otherwise, it doesn't surpass your human finitude. This is the inescapable inner tension in the idea of God. The conflict between the concreteness and the ultimacy of the religious concern is actual wherever God is experienced and this experience is expressed, from primitive prayer to the most elaborate theological system. It is the key to understanding the dynamics of the history of religion, and it is the basic problem of every doctrine of God, from the earliest priestly wisdom to the most refined discussions of the Trinitarian dogma. So, he sees the transcendent versus the imminent question as something that permeates every quote-unquote question of God. Whether or not you believe in him, how you believe in God, whatever God it is that you worship is going to be brought about by angst from your finitude and angst from the uh, transcendent ineffable alien understanding of a deity or something. Now, Mr. Tillich might be dimly aware of the fact that this hasn't really bothered Christian theologians for the entirety of the church. We understand that God is ineffable. We understand that God is transcendent. We also understand that God is imminent because he's God and he's the theistic God, the Trinity, who says, yes, I am not something or someone that you can fully comprehend. However, my son will be sent here to die for you. Do you want the imminent God? Our Lord Christ came to earth to die for us, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to be among us. And our Heavenly Father, thus with Holy Scripture, resolves that so-called tension. But Mr. Tillich, while dimly aware of that, answers this by putting on his anthropology hat. He says, A phenomenological description of the meaning of God in every religion, including the Christian, offers the following definition of the meaning of the term God. Gods are beings who transcend the realm of ordinary experience in power and meaning, with whom men have relations which surpass ordinary relations in intensity and significant. A discussion of each element of this basic description will give a full phenomenological picture of the meaning of God, and this will be the tool with which an interpretation of the nature and development of the phenomena which are called religious may be fashioned. Oh, yes. He says, look at all these religions and how they treat God, or the phenomenology of how men look at a deity, and define it from there. Oh, yes, they're very powerful beings that exist in a way we can't fully understand, and we have a more intense relationship with them that surpasses the ordinary. That's his definition for a phenomenological deity. 
But remember, when you talk about phenomena and how men have approached a deity in the past, you're also putting on your anthropological hat, meaning you're going to look at God through the lens of how men have looked at God historically. So what does he say? He says, gods are quote-unquote beings. They are experienced, named, and defined in concrete, intuitive terms through the exhaustive use of all the ontological elements and categories of finitude. Gods are substances, caused and causing, active and passive, remembering and anticipating, arising and disappearing in time and space. Even though they are called highest beings, they are limited in power and significance. They are limited by other gods or by the resistance of other beings and principles. For example, matter and fate. The gods are open to error, compassion, anger, hostility, anxiety. They are images of human nature or subhuman powers raised to a superhuman realm. This fact, which theologians must face in all its implications, is the basis of all theories of projection, which say that the gods are simply imaginary projections of elements of finitude, natural and human elements. Now remember, he says that all of this applies to the God of the Bible, to Christian theology. So let's reread a little bit of this. Gods are substances, caused and causing. So he believes that the Christian God is caused. He believes that God is active and passive, remembering and anticipating, arising and disappearing in time and space. Mmm, really? Doesn't sound like he believes in the God of the Bible. But he also says that this God, then, that we Christians worship would be open to error, compassion, anger, hostility, anxiety. He does not believe in an impassable God. He does not believe in a perfect God. Unless the God you're speaking about is his ground of all being that doesn't exist but is also somehow real. Paul Tillich here denying the God of the Bible as the Bible presents God. Paul Tillich denying Christian theology. But he isn't an atheist. He will say up and down that, oh, God is real. He's the ground of all being. So we're calling this semi-theism. And it is certainly not Christian if he's willing to say these things about God. Again, though, he believes in God, and he says that God is holy. What does he mean by that? Well, the holy is the quality of that which concerns man ultimately. Only that which is holy can give man ultimate concern, and only that which gives man ultimate concern has the quality of holiness. So what's he getting at? Well, the more important something is to you, I guess, the more holy it is, if it is of that both transcendent and concrete tension that he calls God. But that also means that holiness is established by man. 
something or someone cannot be holy inherently, or else they are, as Tillich here says, demonic. Holiness cannot become actual except through holy objects. But holy objects are not holy in and of themselves. They are holy only by negating themselves in pointing to the divine of which they are mediums. If they establish themselves as holy, they become demonic. They are still holy, but their holiness is anti-divine. And he gives some examples about how like a nation or an object uh, can be holy, but if it's considered holy in and of itself, well then it's, ooh, it's bad, it's anti-divine, it's demonic. Which means holiness must be about ultimate concern, according to Tillich, which is designated by man. Something can't tell you that it is holy. If God tells you that he is holy in and of himself, Paul Tillich would say, well, God, you're being a demon right now. Yes, that is exactly what Paul Tillich is saying. Because again, he has an anthropocentric religion. He believes man is the measure of all things, and therefore man's ultimate concern is what designates something as holy or God. We decide who God is and what God is based on our actions and our priorities. And we have every right to destroy that, which has a quote-unquote demonic or inherently holy aspect to it. So he says, Justice is the criterion which judges idolatrous holiness. The prophets attack demonic forms of holiness in the name of justice. The Greek philosophers criticize a demonically distorted cult in the name of decay. In the name of the justice which God gives, the reformers destroy a system of sacred things and acts which claimed holiness for itself. In the name of social justice, modern revolutionary movements challenge sacred institutions which protect social injustice. In all these cases, it is demonic holiness, not holiness as such, which comes under attack. Ah, and we have an idea now of where he's coming from. Holy has to be based on what we just naturally gravitate to in terms of our ultimate concern. If it claims to be holy, or if it says that it's holy, it must be destroyed. Which is why he has such sympathy, you see, for pagan Greek philosophers. For the reformers, probably the radical reformers, going around destroying statues and icons. And when he says modern revolutionary movements, in this positive sense... Uh, destroying quote-unquote sacred institutions that guard injustice, he's giving some more of his Marxist priors. Paul Tillich was a Marxist. He loved thinking along Marxist lines. And this is uh, kind of just a rewording of Marxism. Marx thought it was the people, the proletariat, that were so wonderful and holy and should naturally have whatever they want according to the principle of equality. Anything else was an oppressor. There's the oppressor class, then the oppressed class, and the oppressed class must destroy, in the name of justice, the oppressor class. Tillich sees holy and demonic in terms similar to Marx. 
holy is the oppressed, demonic is the oppressor. And therefore the oppressors must rise up for justice to destroy the demonic things that claim they are holy. Oh my goodness, it is religious Marxism. But don't you dare think that holiness has anything to do with moral quality. Uh-uh, he denies that because he thinks moral perfection is an impossibility. So, he says, moral law replaces the tremendum and the fascinosum of holiness. The holy loses its depth, its mystery, its numinous character. Ah, yes. You can't experience mystery and ecstatic things if holy means righteous and set apart on account of perfection. Oh no. But that's where he broaches the topic of Luther. This is not true of Luther and many of his followers. The demonic elements in Luther's doctrine of God, his occasional identification of the wrath of God with Satan, the half-divine, half-demonic picture he gives of God's acting in nature and history, all this constitutes the greatness and the danger of Luther's understanding of the holy. The experience he describes certainly is numinous, tremendous, and fascinating, but it is not safeguarded against demonic distortion and against the resurgence of the unclean with the holy. Speaking on other reformers like Calvin, he says, In Calvin and his followers, the opposite trend prevails. Fear of the demonic permeates Calvin's doctrine of the divine holiness. An almost neurotic anxiety about the unclean develops in later Calvinism. The word Puritan is most indicative of this trend. The holy is the clean. Cleanliness becomes holiness. This means the end of the numinous character of the holy. The tremendum becomes fear of the law and of judgment. The fascinoscum becomes pride and self-control and repression. Many theological problems and many psychotherapeutic phenomena are rooted in the ambiguity of the contrast between the holy and the unclean. So for the semi-theist, like Paul Tillich, you can't say that holiness is a matter of right and wrong. Right and wrong belongs to the world of man, thank you very much, just as holiness belongs to the phenomenological actions of man and mankind's priorities. Therefore, anything which deviates from his definitions is automatically bad, it's demonic, blah blah blah. But you'll see with semi-theism, what they're trying to do is push you into a corner where you believe in a God that's just kind of there. We'll explore that next week and why it is so far off base. Because Paul Tillich, in trying to deny that God exists, but also present God as real, he falls into a kind of deism that doesn't even approach deism classically stated. This is God as floating transcendent reality which mankind touches like blind men touching an elephant. This is bad. This is so far removed from anything resembling historic Christianity or the Christianity that the Bible gives us 
that when you look at all the churches influenced by Paul Tillich, it starts explaining to us why they don't care what the Bible says, why they seem to care about social justice, why they seem to care about the world's morality so much. Paul Tillich not only gave them permission to do so by his uh, ultimate concern theology and his philosophy of mankind as being the measure of all things, humanolatry, right? But also he gives these definitions, he tweaks definitions so much that if you just follow along with how he defines things, you end up with a Marxist worldview, which tells us a lot about what he was trying to do in the first place. We'll get more into that next week, but until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. Mm-hmm.